Hello everybody, it's Alan from Cross the Line 1524. Before we get started on this week's episode, as all of you know, we're great fans of the show The Curse of Oak Island, and actually this episode is about that. Um, We just wanted to pass on some sad news. The producer for Prometheus, which you'll hear mentioned numerous times, uh, Kevin Burns is his name, unfortunately passed away this past week. He's responsible for millions of people uh, learning about The Curse of Oak Island. He also has produced several other shows like Ancient Aliens. Um, so he will surely be missed. Uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family and all the folks involved with Prometheus. Well, I came here with just one drink. And that's all I got now, don't you think? That's right. That's how it all gets started here at the Rusted Nail Speakeasy. Just one drink. Welcome to Cross the Line 1524. We're recording with a live audience as usual. Sit back, relax, and join Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, Ruben Hunt, and myself, Alan Stanger, for the Common Man's Podcast. Cross the Line 1524. So did anyone come here for just one drink? Well, we tried. <laughs> we started that way. <laughs> we well, started that way. Well, we come for one. We didn't say we're stopping. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So Freaking bunch of liars. <laughs> what? So, <laughs> welcome to uh, Cross the Line 1524. We're recording with our uh, live audience once again at the Rusted Nail. Oh, Speakeasy. Can we get a woohoo from the ladies? Woo-hoo. There they are. <laughs> That was so enthusiastic. They're enthusiastic tonight. <laughs> oh, so we're picking up on part two of our um, interview with the author, James A. McQuiston, who um, has written several books, five of them to be exact, about the curse of Oak Island. And uh, if you listen to our last podcast, he talked a lot about what got him um, to where he is on those books. He, he wrote four of them about the history Um uh, you know the Scottish Rite, the Templars, um, and, and where he thinks the treasure came from. And then his fifth book on Oak Island is actually a novel based on those books. Um, oh yes, and, and Mr. Montag has that novel. I, do. I so. haven't started. I haven't started reading it yet because I didn't want it to. It's it's um, it's the one. The fifth one is actually. It's a fictitious a fictional book, yeah, a, as a, a opposed novel. to the first Correct. four, which are, Correct. which are uh, not fiction, and yeah. so I didn't want it to skew me. Uh, I'm excited to read it because conversation I with love Mr. the stories, McQuiston. man. I'm connecting fiction with uh, realistic things and oh, yeah. history. I love that. Yep. Yeah. So good deal, good deal. So we had fun talking to him on the first episode about how he got to where, you know, the research he did. Uh, to tie everything together. And in his second episode, he kind of talks about his time on Oak Island, some great anecdotes about the folks that you all see on Oak Island, the TV show, uh, including uh, Rick Lagina, Gary Drayton, uh, Charles Barkhouse, all those folks. So sit back, relax, and uh, listen in. Some more talk about the curse of Oak Island here on Cross the Line. 1524. So we're back here with Cross the Line 1524 with Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, Ruben Hunt, and on the phone we have James McQuiston. 
So, and we're we're here at the Rusted Nail Speakeasy, recording with a live audience, but you can hardly tell because they've been nice and quiet because we got a phone in. So, uh, they're, they're they're here, but they're quiet. They're well behaved tonight. We put them yes. back on table forty eight though, so it's a little it's a little further back. So, James <laughs> has been telling us all kind of good stuff uh, about his books, obviously, and he's been talking a little bit about his time on Oak Island. So. Well, you can pick that up a little bit more, James. Well, um, I was going to uh, tell you what a great guy Rick is. And uh, the first time we realized, I mean, he was always pleasant on the phone or whatever, but the first year that I was going to be in the war room, uh, my wife wanted to be in there, and they said, no, absolutely not. We've never once let anybody that's not part of the presentation or part of the team in the war room well, she was, you know, upset because she'd helped with the book and was all excited and all that. So, for some reason, we rented this big honking truck. I don't. I, I guess the only reason was because it had a GPS, a visual GPS on it and everything, which we ended up using the iPhones anyway. But, uh, so, she thought, well, I'm just going to go shopping because we didn't know if they were going to let her in. So, she said, I'll just go shopping, you know. Uh, so, uh, she's just starting across the causeway when she hears somebody hammering on the back of the truck and so she stops and uh here it's rick and he said i heard what happened they won't let you in there i put my foot down and you're going to be in there so she came in and they said well you need to sit back in that corner there and keep quiet until you know through all of this and I thought, wow, I've been trying to get her to sit in the corner and shut up. <laughs> and I haven't figured out a way. But, uh, you got to get the really good. title of producer. She, took, she wasn't allowed to take pictures, but she stuck a couple real quick. Uh, before everything really got going, she stuck a couple. And uh, But once it started, the, the, the setup in there is pretty cool because they, the guys, the, they have, from my memory of it, is three... Uh, cameraman, and they have this unit over their heads like it's a GoPro, but it's a big one. And then it has a shoulder harness with arms on it, with uh, buttons to control it. And they'll and then they'll get then they have headphones. And then the producer's in a trailer watching it all, and he'll say like camera three pan right or whatever. And they and they I swear to God, the first year they were wearing camouflage. I don't remember the other years. Uh, which would be crazy to wear camouflage in a room, but it literally worked because I don't remember them beyond when they first, when it first started, I took a look around at them. Of course it is darker where they're standing, you know, cause the lights come down on the table, but I don't remember them the whole time after the start of it. And I don't even remember them the last two times, but those giant cameras they had were pretty cool. And then outdoors they use those and they use uh, drones. And they uh, uh, might have like two drones filming the same footage, you know, so that they make sure they get something good. And I have to tell you that it was funny because uh, uh, the very first year, no, this was this was the second year, yeah, the second year. Uh, they said they were trying to get everybody together because they had been up at they. Gary found something or whatever. And so they're trying to get everybody into the war room. So when I got there, they'd all be there. And uh, so they said, well, James, we want to, and they kept, they always call me James. Everybody that knows me calls me Jim, but they 
you know, James is more professional. So they called me James. So um, they said, James, we just want to film you coming across the causeway. And then when you get across, go right up to the building and park on the left and Rick will come out and greet you. So I, they said, but go around the corner. There's a little curve there on that road that goes to the causeway. They said, go around that corner so you won't be visible. And then here's a walkie-talkie, and and you'll hear us call you when it's your time to come over. So I'm sitting there already smiling from ear to ear that this is even happening. And then they say, action, James. And I just burst out laughing because I didn't think I'd ever hear the words action, James. I, um, and uh, so by the time I was crossing the causeway, I had a pretty big smile on my face. And they had two drones in the air, which I saw, but I, didn't, I tried not to look at them directly. And they had uh, a couple guys on the ground with the phone camera. And they filmed me going across. And then I went up. And uh, it's not a scripted show. And a lot of people think it is, but it's not. In, in the 10 hours they filmed me, they've never told me what to say even once. But this particular time, they told me what not to say because I got out of the truck and Rick greeted me and we were walking up and there were only two other trucks there. So I thought there's only gonna be two or three guys in the meeting. And I walked in and everybody was there except Dan Blankenship and Alex. I think everybody else on the whole team was in there. And it was just so surprising when I walked in, I said, wow, you, you brought the whole fam family. And they, laughed. they all laughed, but the the producer guy said, oh, you can't say that. Uh, can you just walk out of the door and come back in and not say that? <laughs> so that is the only instructions I've ever received from them in all the time. They just stand back and film and let right. whatever happens happen. And I, believe me, it, nobody could even write a script for that show. There's too many guys going too many places for too many hours every single day. You'd have to have a script writing crew working all night long of 20 guys or whatever right. to do it and then how would they learn their parts exactly you know the next exactly. day you know because uh, it, 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 the show you know it's only on it's 40 minutes but that 40 minutes is probably 40 hours or more of filming easily and and in different locations so they've got to pare it down and I know some people don't always agree with the way they pare it down you know, well, yeah. you know, and, and a, a lot of people get upset because it, you know, that the the trailer for the week prior leads you to think there's going to be more there. But I mean, they, they want to draw you back to the next yeah. week. It's yeah. it, it's always it's marketing. Yeah, it's marketing. That, that's why it's the number one watched cable show on TV. <laughs> well, yeah. Honestly, so and what what I always say to that because uh, I do a lot of talks and stuff. Although I've been doing less of them because of COVID too, but. I always say, well, we wouldn't know anything if it wasn't for Prometheus. Right. Because right. they're the ones that approached. I went up there in 2007 when they bought it, and I couldn't get on the island. So uh, we went up to Cape Breton and listened to all the great music up there. It's okay. best, some okay. of the best music in the world up there. And uh, so unless Prometheus would have come along in 2013 and said, can, I think it was 2013, when they approached him and said, we want to make a reality show and they said well you can film us and you can edit it however you want but you can't tell us what to do and that's the deal they've had ever since you know right but without yeah. that we wouldn't know anything right so, so you know, you've mentioned prometheus so those listeners that don't know uh that's the production company that films produces and you know puts out on the air on the history channel what you see so great 
and they sell it to history. So there's three different entities involved here. And uh, one year I was up there and I said something about, I, I, was, it must, I, was, I was up there right after season six had shown and and I said, well, I see online that there's uh, gonna be a season seven. Cause he made some comment about, well, we don't know where they're going with this or something. And I said, well, I saw online that there, there's gonna be a season seven. He said, they're just guessing. He said, we haven't made any deal yet. So I think what happens is everybody assumes that it's going to happen. And there's three different entities, history, Prometheus and the Oak Island team. But my guess is they got a bunch of lawyers sitting in a room yeah. and those lawyers are hashing stuff out right, right. to the last minute right. before, the, you know, and then when everybody agrees on who gets what part of the pie, then they finally say, okay, we're going to have a season. But at this point, they'd be nuts to stop it. Exactly. It's the number one, like you said, the number one show. Right. Uh, how many people would love to have the number one cable TV show? And, right. uh, Quite but honestly, there's yeah, networks that would love to have 10 million fans that. around the world right. who, would, which, who, who would be really ticked off right. if they exactly. didn't go back. Yeah. yeah, there'd be some kind of mutiny and it wouldn't be... Pretty. Yeah. They'd attack the island. Exactly, exactly. So... The other thing, the other thing I was going to... The other anecdote about Rick that I was going to tell you um, along the lines of him being such a nice guy is that uh, they've paid for me and my wife to go up there every year. Well, uh, the one one year they did not want to pay for her, and one of the reasons was because they booked it so late that the flights were ridiculously expensive <laughs> compared to other years, and I think that was the reason why. And uh, so she just resigned herself; she wasn't going. So then, like a week later, Rick calls and he said, "Hey, I hear Beth's not. Her name's Beth. Hey, I hear Beth's not coming up." Uh, and I said, yeah, I guess not. And she said, so they didn't want to pay. And I said, well, I asked. And they said, no, it was just going to be me. And I was just going to be in and out, do my thing, leave the next day. And he said, well, she is coming up. I'll pay whatever fees they don't pay. Wow. So you go ahead and book her on the same flight you're on and and stay an extra day. And uh, so we did. And he picked up all, I turned in all my receipts to them and then what they didn't pay I turned them into him and he paid them that's a class act right there. Yeah. yeah yeah so I can't say enough good about the guy and uh, his heart is so into this that you know he gets emotional a lot and you can imagine why because you know even when I'm writing a book I, you get to the point where this is killing me. You know, you kind of have that attitude. This is killing me doing this, you know. And then you finally get it done and you, and you want to cry about it because I got the darn thing done and look how nice it looks and whatever. And uh, for me, there's no better feeling of when I get those first set of author copies back. You know, I'll get like three or five of them and I see three or five copies of the cover I designed and the book I wrote all set together and everything. And usually they're riddled with mistakes and then I got to go get the mistakes fixed and. Yeah. get more copies and throw them away but it's just that initial view of them and uh, I, I published through KDP uh, which is part of Amazon and they're really good they uh, you submit your file I, I used I was in graphic arts for <clears throat> I guess literally I still am by doing my books but <laughs> I was in the graphic arts for 45 years a lot of different jobs in printing and uh so uh, I know what it's like to deal 
with printers and to deal with customers. And they, I set all my stuff up in professional programs and I, I fit them to their specs. And generally, it's all correct 100% of the time. You know, and so the only errors would be like, there's a missing D on the end of a verb or, right. you know, some stupid thing like that that we all miss. Uh, my cousin, Pat Gustafson, reads it too. She used to teach writing. So she reads it, my wife reads it, and they are merciless. So uh, anyway, so by the time I get it back the second time, I get my books back the second time, they're pretty darn close to perfect as far as grammar and the looks of them and all that. And uh, Well, I'm a, I'm a printer by trade, and you do a, you do a very nice job with your books. Uh, your yeah, graphic, I saw that online. Yeah, your uh, graphic layout's really nice, and your uh, the letter type and stuff. It's great for the uh, older readers, especially because the, the type size you pick and the fonts. But the nice job, you do a good job. Well, that was one of my considerations. Uh, you know, it's not it's not oversized type; it's twelve point, but it's a uh, a nice font that a uh, Palatino that's very readable, and a lot of people will put their uh, type in like 10 point and then put a letting on it of 18 or 20 so they use up the same amount of space but you can't read the darn type I gotta get a magnifying glass to read the type and I'm like why don't you just make the type the font bigger and use the same letting and you get almost the same amount of words and I, I could enjoy it more so I've had people comment to me about that they really appreciate that and, yeah. So, yeah. so James I gotta tell you I, I mean I think the us here we're very intrigued with with your books and your theory because i think this group here when it comes to the the uh uh knights templar theory uh that's that's i think nearest to us and where we're at and having read i've read i read your first book um and the one thing that just struck me was just the amount of work you did ahead of time because I think, as you indicated, you were you were essentially um, looking into your um, background, your your family background, and the Scottish history, and kind of came into Oak Island almost by accident. Yes. And and you know, I, I just the amount of work. So I think, aside from the Oak Island story, for me, just to see, I think anybody that's into uh, their their genealogy. And especially if they're into Scottish history and Scottish gene genealogy, but I think just any genealogist reading what you've done would go a long way to help them to understand, you know, how how better to 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 try to track their genealogy. So, just I yeah, gotta, and, and you know, you can do it in a boring way of just listing it like a lot of genealogy books are, or you can tell a story with it, which I like to do because I want to enjoy it too. You know, and and uh, so I don't want to just have a list. Although I list them when I need to, you know, if it's just ridiculous, uh, you know, if there's seven people, I'll just bullet but bullet you, them or whatever. But people relate to I your like story. To tell it That's as what's a story. Yeah. yeah, I'm a storyteller, I guess. Well, and, and well, and I think too. I mean, um, you know, I don't I don't have Scottish background that I'm aware of. You know, so I guess. Um, 
you know, my, my father's side came from, from Germany in the late 1800s. Um, my, my mother's genealogy goes back to the American Revolution and, and the UK at, at some point, but um, not Scottish. But just um, re- reading reading the book, and as you indicated, you, you debunked the debunkers with regard to the Knights Templar and some of that history, how they got to Scotland. And maybe you can... Maybe you can um, take off on that just a little bit and give just a quick synopsis of you know how the the, the, the Knights Templar tied into Scotland well uh, my my theory ultimately doesn't involve them except for the fact that a good share of the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia traced back to the Knights Templar in one way or the other in fact William Alexander he, he was born and raised on former Templar property and his number one partner, uh, they, that family still owns a Templar castle. So I did a bunch of tracing on all of that. But the, the thing about the Templars is that uh, you think of them all being in France, and then they all had to escape. But there were Templars all over, from Spain and Portugal and France and England and Scotland already, and, and Ireland. And in Scotland, uh, this gentleman that I told you um, found all the legal documents that mentioned them uh, came up with 640 properties that they owned in Scotland and these properties, some were churches some were uh, uh, castles, but, but a lot of them were tenement buildings and they actually were like landlords and uh, so when, it, when they were dissolving the Templars in France two things, number one, they couldn't just dissolve them in Scotland because if you got, you know, people living in these tenement buildings, you got to somehow dissolve all that property somehow. You know, it's not just raiding their their treasure chest. You got, you know, there's a lot of legalities and, and logistics to to deal with. Um, but the other thing is that uh, there were never any Knights Templar put on trial in Scotland. There were two from England that were put on trial in Scotland, and they were both found not guilty. But the Scottish Templars essentially got away scot-free. And part of the reason was, and part of the reason the other Templars came up there, was that uh, Robert de Bruce had taken over in the footsteps of William Wallace, trying to free Scotland from England. And so he got excommunicated from the Catholic Church because of that. And so... uh, they also excommunicated Scotland. It's the only country ever that's been excommunicated. So if you're being pursued by the Catholic Church, that was the safest place to go because and he was a he was a knight, uh, Robert de Bruce. Some people try to say that he was a a uh, Templar and he did fight in the Crusades eventually. But uh uh but just whether he was a uh, uh, Templar or not, at least he was sort of on your side because you were both on the outs with the Pope. So uh, the theory is that they were uh, dissolved in 1312, on Friday the 13th. And they, the theory is that they came up to Scotland in 1313 and they came up on the, I guess, in two locations. One was in Lowland, Scotland, walking up through England. 
But the other one was they sailed up and on the Western Isles, there's an island called Maul, which the McLean clan has a castle there. And the story is that that's where they anchored their boats at that island and that they joined in with uh, stonemason lodges because they had to go somewhere. And if you think about it, you know, everybody compartmentalizes everything, but for hundreds of years, the stonemasons and the Templars were working together because they were building all these castles and tenement buildings and churches and stuff. So they would have known each other well and known their habits and and the Templars were the ones that were supplying money for the stonemasons to keep secret all of their skills so they could be the ones that got all that money to build the arches and all the secrets of Freemasonry or of stonemasonry. So it would be the most natural place for them to uh, hide away because they would have, they, while they may not have known those particular stonemasons, they would have known the habits of stonemasonry and the stonemason lodges. And there's a place right across on the uh, mainland, across from the Isle of Mall, where supposedly is where one of the uh, stonemason lodges where they joined. And uh, there's another interesting building. I don't have the all the details in front of me, but I believe it's in my book. But it started as a stonemason's lodge. It turned into a Knights Templar headquarters, and it, now it's a Freemason building. So its history goes back, you know, a thousand years or 500 years or whatever. One thing over there, uh, we look back 100 years ago and think, oh, my God. They look back 500 years ago and think, oh, my God. Right. Because right. I've talked to so many guys over there, and there was this one guy that owns a farm that his family and my family were involved in this crazy situation that happened. And uh, so I so I went up and I met him. He has a farmhouse right up above this castle where this thing took place. And I said, uh, my name's McQuiston from uh, Whiston Castle down there. And he said, oh, my God, I never thought in my whole lifetime I'd meet anybody from the family and uh, I said yeah uh, I've been here a couple other times but I didn't meet you and he tells me the story that I was going to tell him he tells me <laughs> the same story and I said I said, yeah I said, that was 500 years ago can you imagine that he said well we've owned this farm for 500 years wow. Wow. like what you know? so I said nobody in the United States has owned anything no family yeah, is only yeah, for 500 yeah. years at this point, you know. I mean, maybe Native Americans. Yeah, unless it's Native American, exactly. Europeans. And, uh, but I mean, to him, that was nothing. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure he's proud of it, but it wasn't like, you're not going to believe this, but, you know. So, uh, it, it's, they're old countries. They're called old countries for a reason, you know. And, and uh, so, uh, the Templars, uh, they were getting a lot of arms from over in Ireland uh, and they were supplying Robert de Bruce their, their, uh, kind of where they were collecting the armaments armaments, however you say that they were collecting them in Ireland and sailing them across to Bruce and he actually went over to Ireland to an island called Rathlin Island and uh, that's where he saw the spider I don't know if you remember that story but he was ready to give up and he, the only company he had was a spider in his cave by the sea and he was watching it trying to swing over to connect its web and like the seventh time it connected 
and he supposedly said something like one more time and Scotland's free or something and he went back and he and that's when he won the final battles and uh, my family was all part of that uh, uh, they were the ones that hit him on the island and everything uh. so I've been to all those places over there but anyway so um, so I, I believe that they just uh, blended into the countryside basically because they knew that if they were out there blatantly, people would see it. So if you figure that it's somewhat dissolved, and I believe it took a lot longer to be dissolved in Scotland than it did anywhere else uh, because of the fact that they, you know, weren't being watched so closely by the Pope. But uh, they, uh, if you imagine that they eventually dissolved, well, if you're like, from Clan Campbell and you're a Knights Templar and you've got access to a bunch of you know minor Templar treasure you know chest of gold or whatever you're not going to go give it to the tax collector you're going <laughs> to take it home to your clan so I think that a lot of clans up there ended up with a lot of I, I call it minor you know I don't be what it would be worth but but smaller Templar treasures and then those clans are the same clans that signed up to be Knights Baronet. And so I think that whether it was just the fee they paid to be a Knight, uh, Knight Baronet or they actually invested more of their uh, treasures in it, I can see where there could be some former Templar treasure in that money pit. And the reason why I think there could be some vacant stuff there is because both Bacon and Alexander were both on the Privy Council of the King at the same time. They both held all kinds of public offices. They were both poets and authors. And so they would have been right down each other's alley. And here's a big one that I found that is just amazing. But Alexander was one of the promoters of the Plymouth Colony, which a lot of people didn't know. And that's how he ended up getting Nova Scotia. Well, when they they wrote up a petition for the king to create the Plymouth Colony in 1620. The number one guy who signed it was Sir Francis Bacon. And I don't think that's well known, but he signed it as Lord Chancellor. And so I looked up who was Lord Chancellor in 1620, and it was Sir Francis Bacon. It was the very next year when he got put on trial. So who would think that Sir Francis Bacon would have anything to do with Mayflower? <laughs> And he didn't have specifically to do with the Mayflower, but he had it specifically to do with the Plymouth colony that was, at least on paper, waiting for them when they got there. Right. And uh, so uh, he had been worried about when he when he when he did eventually die. I mean, he was thinking about in those terms my enemies are going to take my papers. They're either going to plagiarize them or they're going to destroy them. Because he was, you know, breaking new ground, all kinds of scientific ground. I don't know if you guys know how he died, but he was trying to freeze a chicken in the snow. <laughs> really? They didn't know anything about they didn't know anything about freezing meat, and he was doing an experiment. On, he caught a bad cold and oh, died. Really? So uh, I could see him because the timing's perfect. He died in 1626, and the first ship left in 1628 with with a group of settlers. Uh, they, Alexander had sent a couple other ships over there, but his first real 
group of settlers left in four ships uh, in 1628, only two years later. So he would have known Francis Bacon. He left right after Bacon died. So it's at least a you know, possibility that Bacon said, hey, can you take some of my papers over there for prosperity? Because I know they're going to get destroyed here or else somebody's going to claim somebody's going to claim that they came up with all this or whatever. So uh, there's other reasons to think that. Uh, I'm trying to give the Cliff Notes version sure. of all of this, but it's all in my book. <laughs> Anybody to get one of them. Uh, they're, so uh, so I, you, you've got four, well, five now books, and you're working on the sixth book on Oak Island. Yes. But you have other books besides that. Uh, yes. One of them is about the Yukon and a, and a gentleman in the Yukon that has, although it's spelled differently, it's pronounced the same as your last name. Yes, and we are we are a DNA match, and the reason we know that is because we paid for his grandson, who was an old man at the time, um, to take the DNA test, and he matched me, which just made us jump up and down because... Uh, you know, we wanted to know. I, I got to tell you, I built a fireplace in, in our cottage here, and I embedded a a pint of Jack or Yukon Jack in it because that was one of his nicknames. So I, it was kind of tricky to do, and I used a plastic bottle in case somebody got smart and hit it with something. But uh, it looks like a glass bottle, and I I varnished it up and everything so it wouldn't get stained, and then I. I stuck it in a plastic bag and stuck it in there, did all my stonework. And then as it was just setting up, I took it out, took the bottle out, cleaned it up, and very carefully stuck it back in that little impression and pushed the mortar around it. So it's <laughs> a pretty, pretty cool, cool yeah. story. But, yeah, that book, how that came about was I knew about him again for a long time. And uh, uh, he was uh, friends with Jack London, and he actually gave Jack London a lot of his stories. And London mentioned him in... I think four books and four essays, if I remember right. He's in Call of the Wild, and well, the book, the river, McQuiston River, is in Call of the Wild, I think, in chapter nine. But anyway, so um, I didn't connect that. I just connected that. Yeah, One of my favorite books. Yeah. So we uh, we got his grandson to come down to a group it was uh we were actually down in missouri and there was a couple hundred of us it was from all over the country and uh, we got a hall and these two historians that helped me set it all up came down they brought a lot of museum quality uh, artifacts you know from the arctic and and uh they brought we didn't know they were bringing him we just knew they were bringing the artifacts and we're going to talk so he was the big artifact they brought, <laughs> the grandson of Captain Jack. So uh, they, we were there for a long time that day, and they had a fil of like a PowerPoint, and they had a, all these things to talk about. So, and they said we got a big surprise for you, and they introduced us to this guy. So, uh, as it was all over, and I was president of the organization at the time, so I was one doing all the work, and everybody else was going back to the hotel, and I was helping them pack up. And, I, and they had just written a book about, uh, I think his name was Joe Ledoux, uh, that was a, a big founder in Dawson City. And they said, and I said, well, when are you going to write Jack's book? And they said, we aren't, you are. And I said, oh, yeah. And they said, yep. And they said, we've got 
two boxes from us and two boxes from his grandson full of proprietary information and you're going to sort it all out and write the book. So, wow, that was a tough book to write. It took a long time because I had to decipher a lot of stuff I didn't know anything about. Right. And then I thought I was almost done with it, and uh, I get a call, and they said, you're coming up to the Yukon. I said, you're kidding. They said, nope, we're going to get all these historians, and you're going to come up, and we're going to go to the Yukon Archives and the Dawson City Museum and all that. So... Uh, we went up there. It was quite a flight. That's a long ways up, and uh, and it was quite an experience. Uh, Dawson is like all dirt roads and and old time looking buildings and everything. You know, it's just like they want to keep it like it was. There's yeah. some buildings that are real old that they they're waiting to fall down, but they don't want to tear them down because they're historic. Historic, yeah. But even the new ones they built, so. Anyway, went up there and uh, met all these historians and uh, just saw some really amazing, incredible things up there and went down the uh, river in a Indian fishing boat. They call them First Nations there, uh, First Nations fishing boat with a guy whose ancestors would have traded with Jack McQuiston. <laughs> and we actually stood on the beach where they traded. We went down to where the old trading fort was and stood right on the beach there and got our picture taken and everything. And, and uh, there was there's a lot of stories about that. You don't want me to get started on that one or we'd be here another hour. But, um, so then I thought I was all done until I got all that. So I get back, and at that time I was going through a different publisher that had an actual deadline. So I'm writing like a crazy man. I'm working all day. I was... Uh, the head of the Photoshop department for nine years at a fashion magazine. So I'm working all day and burning my eyes out looking at photos for detail. Then I'm going home and writing till one or two in the morning trying to get everything jammed in. And the last day when I decided I had to let it go, I literally, about one in the morning, I'm sitting there with a patch over one eye because my it's so sore. And I'm thinking, Jim, you could write on this for the next hundred years. You just got to, this is a good place to stop. Just stop and send the thing in. So I did. Stop someplace. <laughs> yeah. So, but it came out nice. And then I was sitting there with all these historians and we were talking about this one certain thing, whether Wyatt Earp ever made it to Dawson. And there were varying opinions about it. And, uh, and I said, well, I just want to get this, I just want this to be the complete Biography, and they said, "Well, it will be right after you publish it." And they all started laughing. I said, "What do you mean?" And they said, "As soon as you publish this, you're going to get stories from everywhere." And I did. I got fifty percent more that I could write into that book, but I don't have the time. But people were emailing me, calling me, sending me letters, and I met a lot of cool people too. Some friends that I still have that uh, were big Jack McQuiston fans. So anyway, that's how that book came about. I got another book on the uh, mayor of. The first mayor of Pittsburgh was a shirt tail relative, and I was always going to write that book, and I started it just for a lark, and uh, I looked up Pittsburgh uh, mayor or something. I don't see what I could find online, and here it's their 200th anniversary of becoming a city. So I wrote the mayor's office, so their uh, resident historian hooked up with me, and they sent me to the Heinz History Center down there and to... Uh, two different pl- two two different other sets of archives. I got like eight inches thick of information that I didn't think even existed, let alone I'd given it. And so that was another book that 
it turned out to be way more than I ever thought it was. And then they had their their parade, and me and my wife and my granddaughter marched in the front of the parade, and it was so cool. And I didn't know any of that was going to happen. So a lot of times, you you know, you just kind of trust. You know, somebody asked me once, what's your five-year plan? I said, are you kidding? I can't possibly make up what the universe is going to give me. I'm just going to let the universe be in charge and see where I'm at in five years. So that's kind of the way I go about things. You know, I, I try to take care of the cut, chop the wood that's in front of you. I learned that from a really nice old guy that used to be a CEO where I worked. And he said, there's so much that you could do and you can think about and theorize about and make different plans but he said we all got a wood pile in front of us we got to chop that we chop that wood pile we'll be okay so that's ever since i heard that that's what i do whatever's staring me in the face i take care of it as soon as i can and something else shows up right away the next day so good advice so i I tell you what we have really enjoyed uh spending time with you uh and, and learning more about not only oak island but some of your other uh, adventures family wise um, and for those of you listening out there you can look uh, his books up on uh, Amazon they're all yep. there uh, under the author James McQuiston uh, just type his name in and bam they'll pop right up yeah and I gotta say one thing about that there's if, if you put in James A. McQuiston you'll be safest because there is another James McQuiston that writes kind of sci-fi type stuff that I would never even read, let alone write. Not that I'm <laughs> criticizing, but it's just not my belly right. So if you, if you see a really weird book, it's not going to be mine. If you see a <laughs> hidden, hidden history type of a book, then that's going to be my book. Perfect. Um, so we're just on two different life paths. And uh, I've never met the guy. He's right over in Ohio somewhere, I think. You never but, know. Uh, you may be related and don't even know it. Oh, we probably are, because the name's <laughs> unique enough, and we've done, clear back in 2002, we, uh, uh, it's spelled a variety of ways, but you have to, it has to be a, a man who's, just, you know, the son of a son of a son to carry down a certain DNA, and so we had several dozen men pay the fee to take it, and we found out that no matter how the spelling is and no matter how they pronounce it, we all came out of the same pot, same bowl. So I, yeah. I figure we're all, we were really loyal guys, but we just couldn't spell good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it, oh, but uh, good but deal. anyway, good deal. So once again, we'd like to thank everybody uh, for listening to Cross the Line fifteen twenty four, and our special guest James McQuiston. I'm here with Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, and Ruben Hunt. I'm Alan Stanger, and our special guest. James McQuiston, and thank you. It was a lot of fun. I, I love talking to people who love Oak Island. Well, you got the right group here, yeah. let me tell Great you. Great job. Okay. So, till next time, take care. All right. Bye bye. You know, there's nothing like waking up on a Saturday morning, making some waffles or pancakes, and getting out that bottle of 100% pure maple syrup. Stanger Sugar Shack, Indiana, 100% pure maple syrup, available exclusively at the Brookville Butcher. Stop and get some, and check us out on the web at StangerSugarShack.com 
or on Facebook at Stanger Sugar Shack. I gotta run now. Pancakes are done and the syrup's waiting. Remember, make sure it's pure 100% maple syrup. Stanger Sugar Shack, another proud sponsor of Cross the Line 1524. That's right, there's nothing like pure 100% maple syrup. Well, we had a great time talking to James A. McQuiston about his theories on the possible treasure that's on Oak Island in Nova Scotia uh, and his books, uh, his time on Oak Island with the folks that are on the TV show. And the good news is it's just been announced that on November 10th, uh, the next season of The Curse of Oak Island will be on the History Channel. Uh, it's on always on Tuesday nights, so... Get your recorder ready because the Curse of Oak Island's coming back. A couple other things. Uh, yet this month, October 24th, we will be recording uh, at Crazy Dogs in Brookville, Indiana. So we're, we're looking for a good time there, a good turnout. Uh, they've asked us to come record there, and it should be a blast. Uh, weather permitting, we'll be on the outside patio. We're going to have giveaways, all kind of good stuff. So looking into our future a little bit, uh, we're going to have the next couple podcasts are going to be about ghost hunting. Uh, we'll be with the Get Spooky Society. Uh, so that's very interesting stuff. You're going to learn some stuff about the uh, rusted nail speakeasy. You may never want to come here after you hear. Other than that, we just want to thank all of our listeners. Uh, please, when you're listening to our podcast, Give us a five-star rating, if you would, and leave us some good comments. That just helps promote the podcast more. It's strange how podcast promotions work. Uh, the more listeners, the more uh, five-star ratings, the higher your podcast ranks when people are searching. So we appreciate all of you. So for Dwayne Bischoff, Ruben Hunt, Jeff Montag, I'm Alan Stanger, and you've been listening to Across the Line, 1524. Hey, no attention to the bottle, it's the door.